Right, so um, Charles Dickens wrote a book. Well, he wrote quite a few books, but there's one in particular, uh, Tale of Two Cities. Was it about which two cities? France and Britain, but they're not cities. Oh. Paris and London. Uh, during the time of the revolution in France and heads being chopped, chopped off in France and will the same happen in London. Today we're going to read a tale of two cities as well. We're going to read the tale of Antioch and Antioch. Two cities, same name, with a bit of a revolution there as well. So we're back in the book of Acts this morning, in Acts chapter 13. Um, let me just remind you of this little picture that we drew a little while ago. The power of the finger. PowerPoint page. No. Okay, imagine it in your head. Oh, there you go. Can you see that? I hope that's visible. At the center is the gospel because we want to be a gospel-centered church. And we, we spoke about this beginning there that God calls us to love four things. There are four things that we are meant to love. We're meant to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So that speaks to what we worship. We love God with all we are. We're called to love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's the inward, downward, us together creating community. And then there are two outward arms. We're called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and that's the story of the Good Samaritan, remember, where we're called to perform acts of mercy and kindness to a world in need. And then finally, we're called to love the world. God so loved the world that he sent his son, and so he sends us. And all of that driven by the gospel, and the rest of the book of Acts really focuses largely on going to all the world. Take the good news of the gospel and the love of God into the world. And what's going to happen in this second half of the book, because it really is part two of the book of Acts, it's going to focus and follow Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he travels around uh, Turkey and Greece, and ultimately when he gets to the city of Rome. It's, it's kind of the fulfillment almost of what Jesus had said at the beginning of the book, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And up until now, we've got Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And from this point on, it's about the, end, the ends of the world. And it all starts in a little town called Antioch. And we're going to read the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. And the other bits, like most of it, I read already. So, chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So you... <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, a reminder of the church or the town of Antioch. We came across it a couple of weeks ago um, and uh, in Acts chapter 11. It was the first place where the believers, where the followers of Jesus were called Christians. They were called little Christs because of what the, 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 the lifestyle that they lived in the face of the people of the city of Antioch. But Antioch was a kind of special place too because Antioch was the very first Gentile church. For the very first time, the disciples took the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus 
to the Gentiles. Now, yes, Peter had taken the good news to, to Cornelius, and there had been one or two others, but all of those guys had become Christians by first being attracted by Judaism, and they'd come into Christianity through the back door of being Jewish. But when the disciples got to Antioch, they said, let's do something radical. Let's go and speak to the Greeks about Jesus, not just to God-fearing Greeks about Judaism. Let's not get them into the faith by first getting them to like Moses. Let's just tell them about Jesus. And so for the first time, the, the Christians, those who are just called Christians, go to Greeks who are worshipping Zeus and Apollo and say to them, come and follow Jesus. And so Antioch becomes the very first church, the very first city where there is a church that is, that is made up of Gentiles. And it plays a huge role in the rest of the book of Acts because it is this church that sends Paul and Barnabas. It's this church that really sees to the evangelism of the rest of the world. And in many ways, we're here today because of Antioch. A couple of things to see in the church at Antioch. Number one, it's a diverse church. I love the list of names in this little passage here to describe what the leaders of the church are like. You've got Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who comes from Cyprus. He's Greek. He's European. Then you've got Simeon called Niger. And the only reason that he can be called Niger is because... He's black, all right? That's what Niger means. Simeon, the black dude. Uh, no doubt he's from somewhere in Central Africa. Then you've got Lucius of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is the same place that Simon of Cyrene came from. That's the guy that carried Jesus' cross. And Cyrene is where? North Africa, Libya. So he's probably not black African, but he's definitely brown African, right? Then you've got Menaean, who says here, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Other translations, other guys trying to translate the Greek words find it a little tricky. Some translations say the half-brother of Herod. Or perhaps just the guy that was at school with Herod. Even if he's not his half-brother, what kind of person goes to school with the future king of England? Wealthy, politically connected guys. Menaean is wealthy and politically connected. He's one of the upper echelons, the, the cream of society. Even though the rest of the cream may have gone a bit rancid and off, the cream of society. And then you've got Saul, a Jew. To be honest, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? There's a black O, a vit O, a brain O, a rich O, and a Jew. <laughs> But it's not a joke. It's, it's the church as it's meant to be. This incredible diversity in the kingdom of God. You know, just, just I don't know, two years before this, this would have been impossible. It was all about being Jewish and being part of the Jewish faith. And Christianity was kind of this, still sort of felt at thought of as this kind of add-on sect to Judaism and in order to be a Christ follower you had to come in via Moses and, and, and to think that a church would be established where there would be such a diverse group of leaders was unthinkable. And so you have here in this church at Antioch a leadership of the church that represents all colors and all classes it's a really good argument 
for a diverse church. And I've just got to say, have a look around us this morning. Man, we're pale. Yeah, we're pale. Samuel, Eric, thank you for adding some color to this very pale group. A church should represent its community. I'm not sure how representative we are, and I'm not sure how to change that. But man, there's a diversity. There's something special that happens in diversity. Oh, it's easier to just be all monochromatic. But there's something that happens when the colors mix. The kingdom of God is a diverse kingdom. The second thing about this church at Antioch is that it's a sending church. This church gets together for a regular meeting. I don't think, maybe, but I don't think it's a special meeting that they're at. It's just the leaders have gathered to pray, as they do. And as they're praying, the Spirit says, and again, I don't know how he says this. Is it an audible voice that rattles the windows? Or is it just that they all agree in their hearts together, knowing that this is what God wants? And the Spirit says to them, set aside Paul and Barnabas. I've got a job for them to do. And the church looks at this and goes, hang on a minute, we've got five leaders, prophets and teachers. Saul is most certainly one of the teachers. I'm guessing that Barnabas is the other teacher. So here we are, our two best teachers. What are we going to do? We're going to send them away. Will the church survive without our two best? Why don't we rather send out our two worst? That's always the best thing to do, right? We want to keep the best here and send out, you know, those guys. No, this church sends out their best. And they lay hands on them, pray for them, and send them off. I skipped reading the next bit because we'll be here all day. I could spend, we, we could have multiple sermons out of this chapter, but I just want to do one. But let me just very quickly, they leave there and go to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' hometown. So I guess he's got some contacts there. They go there first. We're not reading. Uh, yeah, is that, there you go. The two of them were sent on the way and went to Cyprus. And they go to Barnabas' home. My sisters are currently in Cyprus. My youngest sister is uh, house-sitting for friends and dog-sitting for them. And when my other sister heard that she was house-sitting, she booked tickets for the whole family. And so the entire family is currently in Cyprus. And I'm not. <laughs> I know. I know. Here I am. So Paul and Barnabas make their way across the ocean, or across the little bit of the, the Mediterranean Sea. They get to Cyprus, and then they do this tour across the island of Cyprus, preaching as they go, and the news spreads until it reaches the ears of the proconsul. He's the governor, the Roman governor, in charge of Cyprus. And he wants to hear more as well. So he wants to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. But the proconsul has a right-hand man. He has the grand vizier, um, a guy that likes to call himself Bar-Jesus. So I want you to think of Jafar in Aladdin, okay? It's that kind of character. And by Jesus is the guy who, who, who advises the proconsul and gives guidance and some, some measure of leadership to the island. He looks at the entrails of animals and will judge by the flight of birds. And I know some of you are bird watchers and I don't know if you determine where you're going to go and what you're going to eat by what the birds do, but this guy does. And Paul and Barnabas are invited by the proconsul to come and present the message of the good news because the proconsul wants to hear it. But by Jesus recognizes that if this message gets through, then he's done. And so he opposes what Paul and Barnabas have to say. And, um, but Paul and Barnabas, well, well, Paul confronts him. You see, by Jesus, it's a funny name, um, by Jesus literally means the son of Jesus. 
So you've got Paul and Barnabas who've arrived on the island to preach the good news of salvation in Jesus. And you've got a guy here who is claiming to be Jesus' son. Now, either he's literally saying, there's this guy, Jesus, and I'm his offspring from Mary or whoever else that Jesus apparently was married to. I don't know. Um, but I think it's perhaps more likely that he's just claiming to be the son of salvation. Jesus just means salvation. And I think he's just claiming to be, I'm the son of salvation. I have the answers to life. And now you guys are coming along proclaiming something different to what I'm proclaiming. I'm telling you that life comes from the entrails of animals and the flight of birds. And Paul and Barnabas come along and say, no, no life comes from God himself. And Paul says to him, hmm, you call yourself the son of Jesus, but actually you're a child of the devil. Which is Paul's standard how to win friends and influence people. Right? That's how you do it. And, and it, but to be honest, that's, that's, really, that's really the distinction. That's the dichotomy between here and the rest of the book. In fact, it's still the case today. You either really are a son of Jesus or you're a child of the devil. And there are lots of people like this guy who claim to be the son of Jesus and yet go digging in the entrails of animals or checking their star signs or just ignoring Jesus altogether who claim to be the sons of Jesus, but actually the son of someone else. And then Paul says, now you're going to go blind. You're going to be in dark for a few days. And just like what happened to Paul when Paul fell off his donkey and Paul was went into darkness and had to grope around for a few days, this guy now has to grope. And I know that many of us looking at this going, oh, the application of this is that we must be like Paul and I'm going to make some people blind. Corbin. <laughs> no, I know it would be handy, but no. The simple application of this is that what's happened physically to Bar Jesus is an indication of what's already gone on inside his heart. He's dark on the inside, and the darkness on the inside is just being manifest in the outside. And again, that's the case for the whole world. Dark on the inside? Oh, we might be able to see, but the dark on the inside. We've got to hold on to that thought because it'll come later. Paul and Barnabas leave um, Cyprus after a number of people come to faith. And they cross another little bit of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And they arrive in Turkey. What we call Asia, what was called Asia Minor in those days. A place of civilization and trade. And they go to the synagogue and they preach. And I read the first part of Paul's sermon. I'm going to read the second part now from verse 38 um, of chapter 13. Where Paul in the synagogue, this is the message, well, this is the second half of the message that he preaches. He says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, Everyone who believes is justified from everything that you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout followers, sorry, devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. 
On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we'll now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded you, commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing woman of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And so they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So they've arrived in Turkey. They crossed the mountains. It's about a 200-kilometer trip. And they arrive in Antioch. And they must have wondered, we've just left Antioch. And now here's another sign. Welcome to Antioch. What's going on? Two cities, same place. What on earth? Um, named after Antiochus, I think. Um, just like we have multiple cities of the same names today. I come from Newcastle, but not the one you're necessarily thinking of. Um, a lot further away than the one just up the hill here. Um, but they arrive in Asia Minor in Turkey, which back then was one of the key provinces of the Roman Empire. So I, I, we don't perhaps think of it as the center of civilization today, but back then it certainly was. And what we see starting from this passage, from, from this real, really this chapter right through the rest of the book of Acts, is we see Paul and Barnabas' strategy for making disciples. And actually God's strategy for making disciples. And that strategy hardly alters in the rest of the book of Acts. And the strategy is quite simple. It's this. We arrive in a city, we preach the gospel, and we start a church. And then we leave the city, and the church stays behind. And the church gets on with doing the job of making more disciples. And everywhere they go, they start churches. And these churches, these gatherings of believers, becomes the means that God uses to transform the world. Paul and Barnabas don't go into a town and start an orphanage. They don't go into a town and start a school. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things. And churches should do those things. But Paul and Barnabas' strategy to change the world is to start churches. A local church at the center of God's plans and purposes. And here's how they go about it and in the town of Antioch. They arrive at the synagogue on Sunday evening. And the synagogue service would not have been too different to what we have done today. They would have sung some songs. Perhaps not with the same instruments that we have. But they would have sung from the Psalms. There would have been prayers offered. There would have been Bible readings. And there would have been a sermon. And it's possible, I think very likely... That when Paul was invited to come up and say something, to come up and preach, that Paul based his sermon on some of the scripture readings that were read that day. And I think the reason that he quotes these scriptures is to remind them of what's already been read that evening in the synagogue service. And what Luke records for us here in Acts chapter 13 is the longest sermon that Paul preached. 
Well, probably not. I'm sure he preached longer elsewhere. But this is the longest record of a sermon that Paul preached. And I think Luke does that to say, this is what Paul does from here onwards. This is the standard sermon that Paul preaches with some changes here and there. And gives us some insight into how Paul preached in synagogues. And there really are three parts to his sermon. The first part is, look at the Old Testament and the promises that God made and the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Then see how Jesus fulfills that Old Testament promises, how Jesus is the Messiah that has come, and then thirdly, how that applies to us. Paul starts his sermon speaking about Abraham and Moses and the prophets and David, and I read that earlier, and he he speaks about how there is a need for a Messiah proclaimed in each of them. And I don't know if you, you noticed my emphasis, my emphasis, my emphasis in what I read earlier, but I find it very interesting just how, how Paul, when he preaches from the Old Testament, sets it out that God was the initiator of every act that took place. Did you notice that? God chose Abraham. God prospered the people. This is a great one. God endured. God endured the people. God gave them the land. God gave them victory. God gave them prophets. God gave them kings. The whole thing is God did this. God did this. God in grace giving to the people of Israel. And of course these guys in the synagogue know their history. They know how bad the Israelites were. They know how bad their forefathers were. They know that their their forefathers deserved nothing. But God gave, and God gave, and God gave, and grace and kindness. In the Old Testament, it's about the grace of God as he gave. Then Paul goes into the main body of his sermon where he focuses on Jesus. And he says, the Messiah that was proclaimed in the Old Testament, let me tell you who that Messiah is. That Messiah is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the promises made to David. He is the the better David. He is God's appointed true king. And Paul then goes on to spend a long time highlighting the life, death, and resurrection of of Jesus. And he points them back to the Old Testament several times. This is what God promised in the Old Testament because this is at the center and at the core of the gospel. The the, the center of our message is the proclamation of this good news that God sent his Messiah who came, who lived, who died, and who rose again. But I really want to focus in the last few moments this morning on the, the third part of his sermon and, it's, and, and, and what happened afterwards, but the application of his sermon. And it starts in verse 34, where the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Here's what the gospel does, right? The forgiveness of sin proclaimed to you. I, I told the story at our, our home group on Wednesday night, so if you were there, just block your ears, it doesn't matter. You can, yeah. um, but... There was a, I remember reading this several years ago, a university uh, in its opening week um, where they have all the, you know, join this society and you can join that club and sign up. Think of like, I suppose something like Rag Week that we used to do many years ago. Um, and so you've got this week of signing up for clubs. But, but basically in America, it's, it's a week, it's an excuse to party. It's, a, it's an excuse to get drunk, to, to just go wild, do whatever you want. And so the Christian society were wondering, what do we do to impact this week of just debauchery? And they thought, you know, we could set up a little table and with a little sign, sign up for Bible reading. But they thought that probably wouldn't attract too many people to their club. 
in this week of debauchery. So I thought, let's, let's do something different. And so they set up a tent and put a sign up that just said confessions. They weren't Catholic. They weren't offering absolution of sins. They were just offering to listen to confessions. For people to come and confess their sins. They were blown away by the response. Their tent was the busiest of all the tents for that whole week. There were queues lining the street to get into their tent. They had to get extra volunteers to listen to other students confessing. And again, not that they were offering any kind of forgiveness. They, were, they, they didn't even preach the gospel. It was just, a, this is what we as Christians are going to do. We're going to hear your confessions this week. And you know why? You know why it was such an impact? Because every human being knows, deep down inside, there's something wrong. We know that there's something not right. We know we're broken. We know we've done stuff we shouldn't have done. You don't need to be a Christian to know that. You don't need to be Christian to have some measure of a guilty conscience. The question is just, what do you do with that guilty conscience? And our society says, ignore your guilty conscience. And you know what? If you indulge in your sinfulness enough, your conscience will become dulled and you will become a little bit numb to it. Or, or our society says, just, just you know, drown your conscience in another dose of alcohol. Or How do we deal with our guilty conscience? Paul says, here's how you do it. Jesus has come. And forgiveness of sins is proclaimed through him. He has atoned. There's, there's no paying back. There's no, there's no need to work off some kind of debt. Because forgiveness is given for free. And there's this little quote, this little phrase, whatever, like that, that you can't out-sin God it doesn't give you license to sin and say, oh, I can do what I like. But you can't out-sin His grace. And so forgiveness is given. The burden of guilt is lifted. Paul uses slightly different language when he goes on to talk about everyone who is justified by, by, by Jesus before God from the things that the law could not justify you of. In other words, he's saying Jesus makes us right before God. He's speaking to the good Jews in Antioch who'd been trying very hard to perform and to get God to smile by obeying all the laws and all the commandments and doing it all just right. And if we get enough of them just right, God will pat me on the head and God will say, well done, you're okay. But they know that they've never achieved that. That they've never been able to make God smile. And Paul says, Jesus has come. The law can't make you perfect. The law just makes you more aware of your sin. The, the law just reminds us that we messed up. The no speeding sign doesn't stop you from speeding. It just reminds you that we all drive too fast on Inanda Road. Right? The Jews of Antioch were aware of their burden of guilt. Every human being knows that there is a burden of guilt. And how do we deal with it? And Jesus comes and says, the burdens are lifted. What, what weighs you down? What are the things that you can't let go of? What are the, what are the guilts that, that rest on your shoulders? That fight that you had with your wife yesterday. Okay, that was me, not you. Um, 
we're dealing with it. Um, the message of the gospel is the forgiveness of sin. Jesus lifts us from our sin. And I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that. I think sometimes churches seem to preach that Jesus will deliver us from the middle class. That's the message of the gospel. And that Jesus will elevate us to a different level. Or that Jesus will deliver you from your low self-esteem. Or Jesus will deliver you from your headache. But the gospel is about the forgiveness of sin and the removal of guilt. And you know what? That will change your self-esteem, your self-image. It might even do something about your headache. But the gospel is primarily about Jesus and the forgiveness of sin. Paul and Barnabas are then invited home afterwards because people want to hear more. Because people have responded to the message and some have believed and they're loving this message of forgiveness. And Paul and Barnabas sit with them and I love this phrase where they say, and they urged them to continue in the grace of God. Don't you love that? To continue in the grace of God. What the gospel is, the undeserved, the ill-deserved favor of God given to us. And how, so we're saved by grace, how will we continue in our pursuit of Jesus? We're going to try harder to be better, we're going to be good. We're going to get the law sorted out and we're going to obey it. No, we continue in grace. We started by grace, we continue in grace, we will finish by grace. Now here's the thing. Ah, this is, this is great. This is how the Bible all ties together. It's really cool. Antioch is the capital of what province? No. Nice try. It's in Turkey, and the province that it's the capital of is a province called Galatia. Six months after Paul gets back from visiting this Antioch, he's sitting in the other Antioch, and he writes a letter to probably the very first letter that he wrote to the churches of Galatia. We call it the letter to the Galatians. I'm going to read a couple of verses from it because it's cross, right? I urge you, he says, to continue in grace. Six months later, writing to the church at Antioch and other churches, other towns in the province of Galatia, chapter 1, Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel at all. Six months, I urge you to continue in grace. Six months later, you're turning from the gospel of grace. What just happened? Chapter 3 has to be one of my favorite verses. Should, again, it should be one of those printed in a coffee cup. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Duh, no. Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Can you see the frustration in Paul? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? What's wrong with you guys? Have you suffered so much 
for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Or because you believe what you heard? Why does God work among us? Because we're good. Because we're well behaved. Because we follow a particular diet. You see what happened there? Six months earlier, they received the gospel of grace. Paul says, I want, I'm urging you to continue in grace. And six months later, it's forgotten about. And they're trying to fulfill their salvation by effort and the law. At a guess, it would appear that Paul started this church, went back home, and a month or two later, a bunch of ex-priests who are following Jesus, but ex-priests from Jerusalem, arrive in the same city and say, Paul told you it's about grace. Well, you know, it's kind of about grace, but it's also about the law. And so yeah, now you need to make sure that you do all those law things. I will start by grace, but if you really want God to keep loving you, then it's about what you eat. God loves you because you eat kale. <laughs> no one else does, but God does. <laughs> sorry, for those who like kale, sorry. And God won't like you if, you if you eat prawns. And God won't like you if you eat bacon. Ooh. God's love is determined by what we eat. I mean, your wife and garlic, I understand that. That she won't if you eat garlic. Or, but <laughs> or, or, or God loves you because of cosmetic surgery. That was the big thing, circumcision. Get a sharp knife and then God will love you. Really? God loves you because you keep special feasts for Him. Or you have a special day, one day that's more special. That's why God... What? No wonder Paul goes, Idiots! Fools! Nut jobs! Seriously? Listen people, God loves you because He loves Jesus. Not because of stuff you do. And so I urge you, continue in grace. Rest in grace. Because it is this gospel of grace that will change your hearts and not your attempts at being good that will change God's heart. Don't get your head turned by some clever sounding dude on the interweb or some dude down the road who thinks he's got special insight and then tells you how you've got to wear a special little hat and, eat, you know, I don't know. Don't think that your faith is about Jesus plus. Jesus plus the law was the case with these guys. But for many, it's Jesus plus health or Jesus plus pop psychology or Jesus plus special diets. I read this movie. It's kind of, I don't know if it, ah, whatever. It's fun to say. I read this week about a, a new Christian movie about to come out. And some people are very excited about it. Just to say, I'm not. The movie is about, this is the byline for the movie, right? It is about a, an out-of-shape teenager that hears the voice of God and runs a marathon. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. So, the point of the gospel is that Jesus helps me to get fit. The point of the gospel is that Jesus helps me run far. I'm, I'm just not sure that that's what the gospel is. I'm not sure that Paul arrived in Antioch and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to help you run a marathon. Trust Jesus. I don't know. 
I urge you to continue in the grace of God. To wake each day with this reminder that I cannot get through this day without Him. That I have a great need and a greater Savior. That it is all about Him. That it is God chose, God delivered, God rescued, God gave. It's all Him. And it's His grace. The next Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas go back. There's some who love the message, some who hate the message. And Paul announces this. God has sent us to be light to the Gentiles. Remember poor by Jesus in darkness? Where's the connection? The world is in darkness, but the gospel comes to bring light and life. And the good news is that a number of these Gentiles believed, and again, I love the phrase that Luke uses, all who were appointed to eternal life believed. Go home and meditate on that for a while. And the word is spread. It does exactly what Paul and Isaiah said. It brought light to Gentiles right throughout the region, right throughout the province light of the world and the result is that they are chased out of the town they have to leave antioch and when they leave the little church's responses they are filled with joy <laughs> don't you love that paul and barnabas leave and they're filled with joy i'm not sure that their joy is related to the fact that paul and barnabas left i think it's related to, the, to what paul and barnabas left behind that paul and barnabas leave but the good news of the gospel is still there and they're filled with joy and the holy spirit they have left behind them the gospel of the grace of God, and they are filled with the Spirit of God. And of course, you know, who would you rather have, right? If, if, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you really don't need Paul and Barnabas, do you? Who would you rather have, me or the Holy Spirit? Careful. Just <laughs> think about that. Let me wrap this up this morning, right? So, so Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch to Antioch. They go from, uh, they, they are sent by the Spirit to be a light to the Gentiles. And they bring nothing with them other than the message of the grace of God. And they leave nothing behind other than the message of the grace of God. And lives are changed. A revolution has taken place in this Antioch and in this Antioch. There is a revolution in mission. There is a revolution in who gets the gospel. There is a revolution in the hearts and lives of those who hear the gospel and are transformed by it. And the good news goes from Antioch to waterfall. And the message is the same for us, the grace of God, a grace that fills us, or should fill us, with joy and with the Spirit. And so with Paul this morning, I urge you to continue in the grace of God. Saving grace. In Acts chapter 15, Peter says this, we believe that we have been saved by grace. Sustaining grace. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is enough. Ever feel weak? Ever feel burdened? Ever feel all done in? Continue in grace because His grace is sufficient. Sustaining grace. Sanctifying grace. Timothy chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared to all, and it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled lives. What is it that helps us to overcome sin? Try hard, be better. No, the grace of God. Ever found yourself under pressure from the world around you, wandering back down those dark alleyways of temptation? It is the grace of God, not the law of God or the wrath of God or the fear of God. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no. 
sanctifying grace. And finally, grace abounding. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Do you catch all the alls? Saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace, abounding grace. I urge you to continue in grace. I'm going to pray and ask the band to come up and we'll sing about grace again. Our Father, we want to thank you this morning for great grace given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord and Saviour. To read and be reminded this morning of this great grace. Lord, may we continue in it. How tempted many of us are to try and continue, like the Galatians, in our own effort, thinking that if we try really hard, then you will bless us. That if we do certain things in a certain order, then you will show your kindness. Lord, reveal the folly of that thinking to us. May we continue in the grace, in the kindness, in the favour of God our Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Close by singing Grace on Top of Grace again.